we have this amazing advisory board of, you know, anthropologists and historians and linguists and so forth. And one of the interesting things that they mentioned to us, which I found fascinating, is that you look at existing archives of like the Renaissance, and it's full of lists of like that wealthy and important people, almost all the men, of course, because the 15th century, you know, these are the important books that should be preserved for posterity. And apparently, you know, we have so many of those we don't know what to do with them and don't really care about them. What we really want from that era to really understand how that era worked is ordinary people's shopping lists. And almost yeah. none of those survived because they weren't considered important at the time. So, you know, we thought it would be more democratic and more inclusive and also possibly more important and give a more complete view to be as broad as we could. Yeah, isn't that amazing that what we're not after is like some official narrative, right? What we're after is a snapshot, a view into the daily lives of the people or the things they were doing, or what they were thinking during a time period to reconstruct our own view of what was going on at that time. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. Deciding on a cloud provider is hard enough and figuring out pricing and projected costs, that should just be easy. And that's exactly why DigitalOcean has transparent and predictable pricing and also an awesome pricing calculator that not only makes it easy to figure out your cost per month, but it also compares that cost against AWS, Google Cloud, and also Azure. So head to digitalocean.com slash pricing slash calculator to play with the pricing calculator and then head to do.co slash changelog to try DigitalOcean for free with a $100 credit. Again, digitalocean.com slash pricing slash calculator to play with the pricing calculator and do.co slash changelog to get your $100 credit to play with. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Change Local Podcast featuring the hackers, the leaders, and the innovators in the world of software. I'm Adam Stachowiak, Editor-in-Chief here at ChangeLog. On today's show, Jerry went solo to talk with John Evans about the GitHub Archive program and how they're preserving open source software for future generations. On February 2nd, 2020 this year, John and his team of archivists took a snapshot of all of the active projects on GitHub and sent them to a decommissioned coal mine in the Svalbard Archipelago where it will be stored for the next 1,000 years. And today, we dig into the why and everything that makes that possible. So John, you have a long list of credentials and experiences. You're an award-winning author, a journalist. You've appeared in The Guardian, Wired, TechCrunch, amongst others. You're a world traveler visit over 100 countries, and you're a software engineer, which just seems like one of these things doesn't fit in with the others, but maybe it does. You tell me. It's kind of a weird grab bag. I mean, the, the engineering came first. I did my degree in that, and uh, then decided I wanted to go dancing around the world, and then decided I wanted to write. So I usually describe myself as easily bored, which is how all these <laughs> things kind of fit together. There's, so I took five years off to be a full-time novelist and then returned to the warm embrace of the tech industry. Are you staying busy? Or are you getting bored again? Or how are you feeling? Uh, I'm staying pretty busy. I mean, I have a, a couple of different things I'm working on. I am actually writing a new novel. So and uh, we're all staying fairly indoors these days. So it's mostly interior projects, as you might imagine. No doubt. No doubt. So back to writing. You're also the CTO of Happy Fun Corp, which is a software development product agency. 
works with startups and enterprises, but most germane to this conversation, you're the founding director of the GitHub Archive program, which is exactly what we're here to talk about today. I would love to hear how this program started. The way it started for me was uh, Nat Friedman, the CEO of GitHub, who I've known for some years, reached out to me uh, saying he was interested in archiving software, particularly open source software, which is, you know, GitHub's main, I don't know about main focus, but certainly a main interest for Nat and myself. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to look into the possibilities for that. And so we kicked around a couple of ideas and decided that the best thing to do would be to actually go ahead and launch a program under the auspices of GitHub itself. Um, so I took a sabbatical from Happy Fun Corp, HFC, and came on to work full-time at GitHub on that last year. So Nat came to you. Why you? Why John? Did he? you have a history of archiving things? Are you a friend of his? Why did he select you for this? We've never talked about it explicitly, but I think the notion was that he wanted someone with you know enough technical depth and background to understand the nitty gritty of how actually to get all the code into whatever very long term storage we were talking about, which is a non trivial process, but also you know a sense mm-hmm. of imagination and a willingness to work outside the sort of usual thinking. And I guess the history of writing novels and bouncing around the world spoke to that to some extent. Mm. So you took a sabbatical and you decided, well, we're going to archive this under the auspices of GitHub. What were the first steps? Was it like, go find the coldest place on earth or uh, get a file format down? What, what were your first steps? Well, the first steps were obviously to see what other people were doing in this area, which was actually super interesting. There's a project called The Memory of Mankind, which is built on a, in a salt mine in Austria, for instance, which is one of the, perhaps the oldest working mine in the world. It's been worked since probably three or 4,000 BC. And they are writing down data to ceramic tablets and putting it in this ancient salt mine in the Alps. And then the salt slowly sort of moves and accumulates over time. And so hmm. this is going to be sealed off by this giant slow wave of salt as a time capsule for the future, which is a fascinating idea. Didn't yeah. really fit with what we were doing as it's hard to fit terabytes of code on ceramic tablets, it turns out. And also sealing, <laughs> sealing off a time capsule with a giant wall of salt isn't the most convenient yeah, way to get to it if you want. Like the best yeah. way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, that was interesting. There, there's uh, something called the ARC Project, which is actually dropping copies of various things on the moon is the plan to just sort of mm-hmm. crash land various archival facilities drives and so forth onto the moon. Again, very cool idea, not super useful in case you want to access it anytime in the near future or in a whole bunch of possible futures. And then we found out that there is a Norwegian company called Pickle, P-I-Q-L, little software joke for the relatively few who will get it, I guess a disproportionate number in this podcast, <laughs> which had just recently built in cooperation with the, the Norwegian government, or at least a mining company owned by the Norwegian government, a vault beneath an Arctic mountain in Svalbard. That was obviously of some interest. So we pursued things further with them, and it turned out that was going to be a pretty good fit, which is good because building an entire sort of, you know, elaborate superstructure apparatus for archival is obviously a non-trivial job. So it was kind of nice that someone else had done a lot of that work for us. So that's ultimately where you all chose this Svalbard archipelago. Have you been there personally, or was it merely a satellite images? Yeah, yeah, we went last year. Although I should probably mention that that was, of course, that's the most sort of charismatic, it's like the charismatic megafauna part of the archive is the thousand year part. And that's part of the most wacky out of the box thinking. But there's also sort of more 
day-to-day prosaic ongoing archival programs that we're doing with the Internet Archive and uh, the Library of Alexandria, hopefully, and the Bodleian Library and Software Heritage Foundation and so forth. And so we wound up being a, a sort of much larger thing of archiving on a sort of week-to-week, month-to-month basis, and also the very, very long-term Arctic Mountain under the permafrost one. Right. So let's leave the permafrost for now, and let's talk about some of these warm stores. So you're going to have this warm-to-cold storage strategy where you have like dailies or weeklies or whatever it is you can you can lay it out that go to these different places so of course like you said the frozen tundra is what gets all the press right and of course it's the coolest yes. weirdest <laughs> part about it and it's like that's the video is not going to be of uh, the wayback machine but the wayback machine's involved tell us about all the things you're doing to do the warm long-term storage yeah, and in fairness, the Wayback Machine does actually look cool. I don't know if you've been there, but uh, at no, least one, one copy of the Wayback Machine sits in the Internet Archives headquarters in San Francisco, which is a former church. And they have these sort of walls of hard drives in the back of the former church with little lights blinking whenever somebody archives them. So there oh, is, that a is cool. certain dramatic effect which goes on there. But yeah, there's, I mean, part of archival is making things available to people. And uh, in particular, something like GitHub, which is like a tool that people use and, you know, has critical aspects that people want to be able to access, it's useful to have other backups of that out there. And so the Internet Archive is currently sucking down a whole bunch of GitHub public repositories with the intent of making them available as Git repos on the Wayback Machine. So you can, you know, point your, your Git command line to the Internet Archive URL and pull down your, your node package from there. Right. If need be in the future. So those are effectively Git clones that are synchronized. Yeah. And I guess a larger perspective. So we were sort of inspired by Stuart Brand's Long Now Foundation, who you may be familiar with. They're the people who think that we have this Mayfly-ish attitude towards history, which when in fact history, it turns out, is a very large thing. When they give the year, they preface it with a zero to reinforce this. So we're in the year 02020 right now, Mm. which is sort of a, a... fun little eyebrow razor that they do. It shows their perspective, huh? Yes, yeah, exactly. And Brand wrote this piece about pace layers, about how certain aspects of a society or a civilization move very quickly and other aspects move quite slowly. And it makes sense to sort of look at things that, from that point of view. And so we kind of adopted that into archiving, you know, pace layers. We have the very, very slow under the ice for a thousand years, but we also have the sort of more dynamic, faster, let's grab changes as they occur several times a year pace layer, which sort of maps to software too. And that, you know, obviously everything is changing and iterating, but you still have your baseline of the tried and true technology that everyone uses. And then you have the new stuff that people are, you know, playing around with and changes are coming thick and fast. Yeah, exactly. So when you look at the Wayback Machines version, is that effectively, is that like a day old thing, a week old thing? How old are those snapshots? Are they synchronized in real time? Well, they're working on a couple of test projects right now. The objective is to get the snapshots several times a year. So, you know, it'd be ne- never be more than a th- three, four months old. Um, the actuality of that, I mean, they're still working away on it, but they are very good at what they do. So that's our hope and expectation. And that's effectively a backup. Is the point of that, if GitHub disappears, at least we have the Wayback Machine? I mean, GitHub could disappear through some sort of BSD hacking, right? Like pieces of the internet could vanish for a day because someone messed with BSD because it's sort of BGP, not BSD, horribly insecure protocol. So it's nice to have that handy if, you know, for whatever reason, GitHub IP numbers aren't accessible in your country at that that time, that sort of thing. And, you know, more generally, it's just useful to have another copy around so you can Mm -hmm. go back and refer to that if needed. Then there's also GH Archive, which 
I think it lives in BigQuery. Is that right? We use it for our changelog nightly newsletter, which queries it's queryable, and it's the events that happen on GitHub, but there's also source code involved in that as well. Is that part of the archive program, or is that a separate project altogether? Yeah, they are affiliated with us. They predated the archive program, and we were sort of reached out and tried to incorporate them into that. Yeah, there's them. There's also the Software Heritage, who are doing much the same thing. The Internet Archive, except they're trying to get all source code everywhere and keep it in one single sort of monorepo of their own. Um, they're based in Inria in Paris, and uh, they have their own sort of technology and, uh, and scraping and so forth. So, you know, as with all backups, you want multiple copies. Yeah, if it doesn't exist in three places, it doesn't exist, right? Right. So that's uh, the warm storage. You've got the GH Archive, which is uh, associated. You have the, the other foundation, which is associated. And then you have this long term, which is a snapshot. You all did the snapshot February 2nd, 2020, I believe. Was this all public GitHub repositories at the time? Or was it like you picked your favorites, picked the most relevant repos? We talked about that very early on of whether we wanted to be sort of editorial about what we picked and chose, and we decided to avoid that to the extent possible. Um, <laughs> I think that's a good for, idea. <laughs> yes. For, for, I mean, for some of the reasons are obvious, some of them are, are less so. Uh, we have this amazing advisory board of you know anthropologists and historians and linguists and so forth. And one of the interesting things that they mentioned to us which I found fascinating is that you look at existing archives of like the Renaissance and it's full of lists of like that wealthy and important people, almost all the men, of course, because the 15th century, you know, these are the important books that should be preserved for posterity. And apparently, you know, we have so many of those, we don't know what to do with them and don't really care about them. What we really want from that era to really understand how that era worked is ordinary people's shopping lists. And almost none of those survived because they were considered important at the time. So, you know, we thought it would be more democratic and more inclusive and also possibly more important and give a more complete view to be as broad as we could. Yeah, isn't that amazing that what we're not after is like some official narrative, right? What we're after is a snapshot, a view into the daily lives of the people or the things they were doing or what they were thinking during a time period to reconstruct our own view of what was going on at that time. It's amazing. Yeah, exactly. And if like if you're deciding what's important, then you're passing judgment on what's important. And maybe our judgment isn't so great. Maybe 100, 200 years from now, they're going to look back and think what we really care about are the Hello World apps, the Hello World stuff and where mm-hmm. they came from and what time zones they were in. That was the most interesting things to us right now. So if you had public code on GitHub on February 2nd of 2020, then you have code in this archive. Is that correct? Yeah, I can break that down for you in more detail. It was a little more complicated because we did have space restrictions. So any repos with any commits of any kind, regardless of how many stars or anything, between the day that the program was announced, that was GitHub Universe 2019, um, that was November, I think, and the snapshot date, so in the 80 days before the snapshot, and all of those repos were captured. Mm, so active projects. Yes. Somewhat active. Yeah, any repos with any stars at all, and you can start your own repo in GitHub, of course, um, from the previous year before the snapshot. We all do, don't we? Yes, exactly. So <laughs> <laughs> I've been known to snare mine, I'm not going to lie. Um, <laughs> so for the full year, anything with a commit for the full year before the snapshot was also taken, and anything with more than 250 stars, regardless of commit date was captured. So if there's old stuff that the community thought was important, but you know, hadn't been updated in some years, we grabbed that as well because we figured mm. 250 stars was a pretty significant, you know, indicator that somebody thought this was okay. Obviously this is some level of judgment because we didn't yeah. have a limited amount of space, but we tried to keep, you know, to minimize that to the extent possible and be as inclusive as we could without, you know, setting criteria. 
So let's talk about the space required then. Of that sna snapshot, how big was it in layman's terms that we can understand, like terabytes, petabytes, whatever? Yeah, 21 terabytes, and that's compressed. Okay. So it added up. There's and do you know how much it would have been if you would just have said all public repos, even the old stale ones? Would it have been like 10x, 100x that? Uh, I don't really know. We looked into it and we're like, that's going to be more than we probably have space for. I don't, 10x seems high to me, but not super high. But that's a gut feeling. I, I don't really have the numbers offhand. Sure. There's. So when you say that we have space for, are you talking about terabytes? Are you talking about physical space in this vault? You only have so much surface area in there, volume that you can fill. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, the vault is a former coal mine. So in terms of cubic meters or cubic feet, there's a little, very, very large amount of space. <laughs> coal is not the densest and stuff on Earth. Right. It goes down very deep. But we had, you know, a limited amount of tapes uh, that we were generating. And uh, 186, I think it turned out to be. And each of those has a limitation of about 110 gigabytes, which, you know, on the one hand is actually fairly dense for something which is written to like a visual format. But on the other hand, you know, when you're accustomed to, you know, one terabyte USB sticks and so forth, seems a little worrying and something you have to sort of recalculate around. So, yeah. And so a quick note for the listener, if you're curious, do I have code in the GitHub Arctic code vault? Just go to your profile. They've added now a badge for everybody who does. And if you were active during that time period at all, then likely you do, but you can be sure, and they'll even list, if you hover over that, they will list which repos, a, a short list of the ones that you contributed to, which, yes, do have code in the Arctic Code Vault. Very cool. When Adam and I were looking at that, because we started to notice this badge on some people's repos, and we were thinking it was just like, if you contributed to Ruby or Rails or the Go programming language or NPM or these very important repos, then you might be an Arctic Code Vault contributor. And then we both realized we were both Arctic Code Vault contributors. Oh, cool. <laughs> so it must have been not that, because we aren't contributing to those large projects. And it's very interesting to hear that uh, that decision was made. I think it was a very wise one to say, if it's active, we're going to snapshot it, because that's uh, smart for many reasons. Actually, not everyone. I have coworkers at Happy Fun Corp who do not have the badge because, um, you know, they're professional software developers, but they work in private repos day in, day out, and so forth. And uh, I got a couple of comments like, you could have told us, John, could have mentioned that this was happening. So <laughs> yeah, because they missed the boat. <laughs> yeah. Or I guess it's a train or a, an airplane. I don't know how you get out there. <laughs> What's up, friends? When was the last time you considered how much time your team is spending building and maintaining internal tooling? And I bet if you looked at the way your team spends its time, you're probably building and maintaining those tools way more often than you thought, and you probably shouldn't have to do that. I mean, there is such a thing as Retool. Have you heard about Retool yet? Well, companies like DoorDash, Braggs, Plaid, and even Amazon, they use Retool to build internal tools super fast, and the idea is that almost all internal tools look the same. They're made up of tables, dropdowns, buttons, text inputs, search, and all this is very similar. And Retool gives you a point, click, drag and drop interface that makes it super simple to build internal UIs like that in hours, not days. So stop wasting your time and use Retool. Check them out at retool.com slash changelog. Again, retool.com slash changelog.
we were talking about storage format. And many of us have ran into the scenario where you think you've backed something up and then you wait a few years and you realize that there's nothing in the world that can read that anymore. Uh, whether it's Betamax or it's been damaged, right? CD-ROMs, DVDs, they're still out there, but you go 100 years in the future, there may not be any CD readers out there that will work. So I'm sure that was a huge consideration when you're trying to shoot for a thousand years. Absolutely. That format is super important. Yep. And ironically, I mean, that's one of the reasons of the archive is so to document things like file formats and so forth for the future. And fortunately, this is a thing which the format that we're using, which is sort of hardened microfilm as an oversimplification, but it's not too much of an oversimplification, is useful for, because ultimately to just get basic information out of a piece of film, you need some a source of light and some magnifier. So each of those 186 reels is actually in and of itself a self-contained archive. It starts mm. with human-readable, visible sort of text and pictures explaining in several languages what is on the reel and how to access it and how to make sense of its contents and an index of the things which are on it before going into the more encoded sort of QR code-ish mm. sort of visual data encoding. Like an instruction manual. Yes, exactly. What's the physical medium? The physical medium is a silver halide on polyester film, which the ISO rates for 500 years, but Pickle has a special hardened film, which they, the Norwegian military has done some initial tests with and uh, say it should be longer than that. Pickle mm -hmm. thinks it could be good for up to 2,000 years. We're saying 1,000 years, you know, out of a, what seems like a reasonable abundance of caution. Right. Yeah. How do they do that? You know, this thing will last 2,000 years. We've tested it for three months. Well, I mean, they do artificial testing and sort of like heat treating and, and uh, other forms. But to an extent, yeah, I mean, the only way, obviously, you can actually test for something last for 1,000 years is to, to leave it out for 1,000 years. That said, I mean, as the ISO will tell you, this stuff, silver halide on polyester, is widely considered to be one of the most stable formats around, and it's not going to be going anywhere anytime soon. Particularly if stored, and you know these are in boxes, and the boxes are wrapped in an aluminum film, and the aluminum film is in a steel vault, and the vault is in a coal mine, and the coal mine is in an Arctic mountain, etc. Seems pretty. So the condition safe. should be yes. We we'd like to think so. Yes. yes. Until a meteor hits that mountain, that particular mountain. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there, there's, there is actually another backup. We're taking a couple of reels with the 15,000 most starred repos on GitHub and also a random sampling of just all other repos because we still wanted to include some of the sort of mm -hmm. inclusive democratic everyone thing, even in these what we're calling the greatest hits versions. And mm -hmm. we're going to give those to libraries. So the, uh, we're intending to give those to various, you know, more traditional archives and libraries in other locations around the world. Yeah, that's interesting because I did read uh, from some of your marketing copy. You say this uh, this protects the priceless knowledge by storing multiple copies on an ongoing basis across various data formats and locations. And then I was like, and locations? So I thought maybe this Arctic storage vault is just the first of multiple locations. But is that referring to like the Wayback Machine and these other libraries? Or do you think you'll say, well, we got one in, Ar in the Arctic. How about the Antarctic? Or how about the equator? That would be a bad place to store it. But... Well, yes to all of those, maybe. We don't really have like a fixed, you know, formal plan for the, the next snapshot, but 
I personally expect that there is going to be a next snapshot, you know, five years from now, maybe. We're working with uh, Project Silica, which is this kind of amazing Microsoft research project that uses femtosecond lasers and 5D polarized light technology to store enormous amounts of data on quite small platters of glass. So that's, you know, a possible format of the future. That's theoretically good for 10,000 years because obviously a thousand years isn't good enough. Right. You know, we have to, yeah, but it's, you know, a little uncertain what the next snapshots will look like. But the general idea is that another way to get redundancy is to have multiple snapshots in multiple different locations. Mm -hmm. So potentially more locations coming. What was the process to get them out to this particular place? You mentioned it was February 2nd, 2020. The snapshot was taken. You had a hundred and what is it? 86 reels put in boxes. Were these just you slap a FedEx shipping label on them, or how do you get them up there? <laughs> Originally, we were going to go with them. And in fact, we went, we being a small, small team of GitHub people, went last year to sort of investigate the site, put an initial reel with 6,000 repos in, you know, sort of proof of concept, prepare for the announcement, that sort of thing. So we did go to Svalbard, go to the coal mine, and so forth. And the plan was to return uh, for the actual deposit this year. But then the pandemic broke out, which, as you might imagine, kind of confused the whole international logistics part of the operation. Fortunately, Pickle is based in Norway, and Norwegians at the time, only Norwegians could go to Svalbard, which is still COVID-free, by the way. There has not been a single case. And it's famously quasi-illegal to die on Svalbard, so that's good. Wait, 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 wait. (laughs) Quasi-illegal to die. Please unpack that. Tell me what that even means. I think this is kind of an apocryphal, maybe a too-good-to-check kind of story, but they don't really have any facilities for, for death on Svalbard, you know. There's no morgue, you can't bury anyone in the, in the uh, permafrost and so forth. And so generally when there's a serious medical condition, you get sent back to the mainland one way or another. That's hilarious. Yeah. That's somewhat morbid, but interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so in this particular case, you know, our Norwegian partners wrote the data to f- film, and then there are... Svalbard is more accessible than people might think. It, until recently, it was growing to a significant tourist destination, and there are flights there a couple times a week still. So it flew in the belly of the twice-weekly flight to Svalbard. Um, this, I think, roughly the size of a Toyota Prius, is, for some reason, the, the unit, the volume unit we started using, that, you know, the GitHub archive is about the size of a Prius. So they basically packed this Prius into the belly of a passenger plane, uh, flew it up to Svalbard, and then sent it up to the mine and the mountain itself, which is actually not far above the airport, so it kind of overlooks the runway. How many people live up there? 3,000. Uh, it's variable because there's a university there, and so there's sort of an occasional university population, but 3,000 seems a bit right. It's certainly by far, given its latitude, it's by far the largest thing, you know, north of about 70 degrees. Mm-hmm. So you can't die there, but could you visit the mine and, you know, see the GitHub boxes or at least a sign that says GitHub lives here or something like that? You can visit the mine. The vault itself is locked and sealed off, but I believe they do run, or at least they were, running tours to the mine itself. So you can get reasonably close. Similarly, the the famous Global Seed Bank is right around the corner. You can walk from one to the other. It's about a mile distance between the two, um, from the mine to the seed bank and vice versa. So you could do a sort of two-for-survival tourist destination. I'm not familiar with the seed bank. Is that like where they keep a, a bunch of seeds for things? Yeah, the global seed vault. So every country has a seed bank to sort of maintain seeds of the various agricultural mm. plants that they use. And then the global seed vault is sort of the backup to the backup for those seed banks. And it has this very dramatic wedge-shaped building, oh, also yes. on Svalbard. Yeah. I have seen the picture of that building. It's very cool. 
So there's no hot, you can't do any bug fixes though. So you can't go up there, extract your code, fix something real quick. Cause that's, that's in history forever. You know, I'm sure I have bugs in there. Oh, I definitely do. I, <laughs> I, I fixed one the other day and I actually thought <laughs> the, the, the stupid little typo is now eternal. There's, so yeah, there's one of my personal repos that got, happened to get captured up there. But I mean, that, I guess that's part of the appeal. Maybe in the future they'll look back and think, you know, in these antiquated days of software development, they still had bugs. They didn't have AI right. to automatically fix them while they were working. How fascinating, you know, maybe something like that. They might think, we don't know who this Jared Santofel is, but he was a real <laughs> idiot. <laughs> he was a real bad programmer. <laughs> oh, man. Well, speaking of that, I guess, can you opt out? Can you say, yeah, not for me. You know, this code is just, it's public, but I don't want it to be in perpetuity. You can opt out. Uh, you, in fact, you could between the announcement and the snapshot. We got very, very few opt out requests. Uh, I forget how many, but it was a fingers of one hand, something like that, I think. Yeah. But it is possible, and there's an option on your settings page in GitHub somewhere now to opt out. I don't think it's, you know, I think most people are mostly opt-in. They like the idea of their stuff going into the future, and they like the idea of sort of the broader perspective of capturing, you know, not just the open source on which society relies, so that's obviously crucial as well, and that's the part that may be of, you know, medium-term-ish practical use, but being part of this big capture of, you know, not just software, but kind of the the tech community and to an extent a way of life that is being snapshot and put up there. Yeah. How would you imagine somebody finding this or unpacking it a thousand years from now? What would they do with this archive? Would they read the code and try to figure out what we were like? Would they try to run the code, execute it? Or are they, are they trying to restore from backup because something <laughs> went crazy? What do you imagine? I mean, we've, we've talked about this a lot. I think the most likely thing is that it's going to be a primarily historical value. I think that people might try and run the code again, especially if there are, uh, since there are some games there. Uh, the Internet Archive, you can go to the Wayback Machine right now, or at least to archive.org, and play the initial Prince of Persia, for instance, which is very popular. And I think, you know, in the same way that 8-bits, you know, became a sort of weird aesthetic not so long ago, it's possible mm -hmm. that people will want to sort of craft emulators of today's you know, antiquated computers and run software the way it used to be in the old days in the same way that, I don't know, people build 19th century train sets or mm. mock, mock train sets today. Um, there's also the possibility that, you know, this will actually be useful. A thing that people don't realize necessarily is that software is surprisingly ephemeral. Like it's all on hard drives. Hard drives don't last that long, you know, like mm -hmm. years, maybe decades. Backup tapes are also, you know, they're good for decades. And over the long run, we kind of expect everything to get copied to the next storage medium and the next storage medium and so forth. And probably most of it will, but also you're almost certainly going to have losses along the way. So it's easy to envision, you know, some piece of industrial software that it suddenly, you know, something vital has been running on for the last 40 years without anyone noticing, and suddenly we need to patch, or some data format that's suddenly important for some high-profile legal case or something that we need to be able to access, that sort of thing, and someone going back and saying, wait, where is that code from 2017 describing this obscure data format that looked like a good idea at the time for about two years in yeah. 2067? So, ah. Svalbard? Maybe Svalbard? we can get out of there. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like the beginning of an Indiana Jones movie, right? He's got to go to Svalbard yeah, exactly. to find the thing. I mean, it could be sort of a Rosetta Stone if there were other code that was found that they didn't know how to interpret it, or they didn't know how to execute it, because this has those instructions that maybe there's an opportunity there to find the runtime that that ran against, or 
uh, fix that dependency problem. Like, hey, is all of NPM in here? Maybe we can actually resolve these dependencies. That's what I think about when it comes to execution because a lot of the code up there, you're not vendoring your, your dependencies in your repo, right? So a lot of the source code is there. Are you taking binaries too, like executable code? Or would everything have to be built from source in this hypothetical situation where someone's trying to restore something? Oh, there are some binaries up there. I think the repos with a lot of stars again got binaries, though mostly it's just source. I am kind of curious myself just how many copies of node modules we wound up capturing because I, I thought seriously about excluding that from the archive, mm-hmm. but I decided not to in the end. You know, and even that might have some value, you know, sort of an implicit sort of snapshot of the various dependencies along the way and how those changed. So, but it wouldn't shock me greatly if, you know, there were a lot of node modules just raw up there, duplicated over and over and over again. But that might be useful as well. Uh, there is also going to be a master index. Um, so in principle, assuming everything's on GitHub, which, you know, most open source is these days and it's not some sort of private repo, then you should be able to, given time and, and good computers, sort of reconstruct most of the dependency tree for any given project. What's up, friends? Are you looking for a way to instantly troubleshoot your applications and services running in production on Kubernetes? Well, Pixie gives you a magical API to get instant debug data. And the best part is this doesn't involve code change and there are no manual UIs and this all lives inside Kubernetes. Pixie is an API which lives inside your platform. It harvests all the data you need and it exposes a bunch of interfaces that you can paint to get the data that you need. And it's essentially like a decentralized Splunk. It's a programmable edge intelligence platform and it captures metrics, traces, logs, and events, all this without any code changes. And the team behind Pixie is working hard to bring it to market for broad use by the end of 2020. But guess what? Because you listen to this show, I'm here to tell you how you can get your hands on the beta today by going to pixielabs.ai. Links are in the show notes, so check them out to click through to the beta and their Slack community. Once again, pixielabs.ai and look forward to a Pixie Day coming soon. documentation around this is this idea of a tech tree and maybe you've already described this with the manuals but uh, it's like a capital case T capital case T tech tree and I wasn't sure exactly what that is can you describe what the tech tree is and how that concept plays into the archive sure yeah and I'm glad you printed that up because it is a distinction it's not the same thing as the manuals as the guide and the sort of instructions for decoding that's on every reel that turns every reel into its own self-contained archive the tech tree is a real Possibly two. We're still compiling it. We're going to add it to to the mass once it's done. Just of sort of larger, higher level explanatory stuff. Mostly works, you know, pre-existing works, books, and so forth. To, but to explain, you know, what software engineering is, what an algorithm is, what a computer is, you know, what how you would hook together transistors and op amps and so forth to form a NAND gate. How NAND gates would make up, uh, you know ultimately a small microprocessor, that sort of thing. So in theory, there'd be enough information that you could, in fact, reconstruct a fair amount of modern technology mm. from the information you know, on those various books. Now, this is a very romantic and compelling image. 
I yeah. should mention also, in all honesty, that our advisors were like, yeah, this is cool, but we are living in what is going to be the best documented era in all of history already. Like, True. it's very unlikely we're going to have a future in which these books, many copies of these books don't already exist sitting around in many other physical libraries that are kind of easier to get to. But we figured it would be useful as context and general understanding for for the source code, which goes with it as well. So did you end up packaging that stuff up, or this is an idea that's ongoing? It is going to be packaged up. We we actually just sort of released it for public commentary last month, and I've been sort of incorporating uh, pull requests and issues on that recently. So we're going to compile those books. We're going to put visual copies. This will all be human-readable, not encoded, for obvious reasons, so that you get sort of the background to begin with. Um, except for Wikipedia, because that's too big. But we're going to put a snapshot of Wikipedia. I was just going to ask, like, it seems like that would be the easy <laughs> button for this. Just put Wikipedia up there, and you're done. One of the highest rated uh, comments on the video when we first released the video um, last year was, don't forget to store Stack Overflow next door. <laughs> but Stack Overflow is also Creative Commons, so we are, in fact, going oh, to are. get a dump of Stack Overflow and drop it in the tech tree as well next to Wikipedia, yes. That's awesome. What else is going in there? Wiktionary, a couple of other things, and a list of about 200 books, mostly but not exclusively technical, all of which is available on the archive program repo at GitHub which I think is github.com slash github slash archive dash program. I'll smash that one up and link it for those interested in seeing all the things inside the tech tree. Are you guys taking suggestions? We are actively taking suggestions right now. We're incorporating some at the moment. Yep. We still have to sort of work with publishers since we're literally making a copy. Copyright becomes an issue, obviously. Um, so we have to figure out uh, the rights issues with a bunch of these and so forth, which is why one reason it's been a little slower than the rest of the project. But uh, we are actively working on compiling that and adding it to the vault. Okay, very cool. Yeah, I found it, and you have it broken out into different areas, such as hardware architectures, uh, hardware development, electronic components, and you have books. You, know, you have uh, an articles, I assume, written modern software development, and under there you have these different books that are going to be included. So that's very interesting. What's the next iteration of this then? Or what's the timing? I guess, like you said, the pandemic has changed timings. Was it hope to be well, once a year you'd ship another thing to the Arctic or would it be every once in a while? When would you be updating this, the vault? I mean, I, th I think we're still figuring out the roadmap. I wouldn't expect every year. That seems a little, you know, I don't think we need that much frequency that the sort of first deposit captures the last hopefully 20 or 30 years of software i could see every five years yeah and i could see d different data formats again for each one to sort of redundancy through variability that kind of thing the tech tree is also a thing which i think will iterate over time like the romantic image of the tech tree and one that we do aspire to is like an actual manual for rebuilding you know technological civilization from scratch the V1, as with the long now, as manual for civilization, is existing works. But I could see sort of things being constructed for this purpose, uh, kind of courses over time. But that is hypothetical, somewhat by the sky stuff for now. Right. I think the road, the roadmap, at least the one that I personally have in mind, is snapshots every five years or so. Oh, it looks like you're including Wiktionary as well. That's okay. correct. Yes. I'm just yeah. over here looking at all the. This is a pretty big tech tree. You got a lot of. <laughs> you have a lot of uh, copyrights to get figured out here, don't you? I guess you just speak to each publisher once and you probably get all the permissions you need for that publisher. Yeah, that's the idea. I mean, I mean, we've got some already, um, some have been extremely helpful, like O'Reilly, uh, Pact, they've, they've been great. And so we're having trouble, you know, just sort of working out the whole list of publishers. There's quite a long list you go through them, uh, but we'll get them one at a time as time goes on. 
hopefully. So somewhat uh, interestingly related with regards to the cultural and technical context of the time period, all of the changelog and our whole network's podcasts transcripts are open source on GitHub. And so they are undoubtedly also in there. Yes, that's true. Everything up until February 2nd will be recorded word for word. So you have thousands of conversations of technologists through the years yeah. uh, associated with that. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that I think is interesting in a tech tree as well. What were people saying to each other? Yeah, and actually that's one of the things that I get excited about. And I think, but it's, you know, there's a lot of source code. Source code is very important. There's like the fundamental pinnings of open source, which is, you know, a cornerstone of technology and civilization. If we know it, that's critical as well. But also, as we all know, people use GitHub for all kinds of weird things. Right. There's, you know, there's recipes on there. There are books on there. There are sort of random notes on, on there all over the place. And, you know, the extent to which historians of the future will find that this weird and unexpected treasure trove is kind of appealing. Yeah. Yeah, could, yeah. All the things you'd find in there would be quite a interesting thing to dive into. Exactly. What about the issues? So lots of conversations go on on GitHub that are about the source code. Is GitHub issues going to be involved in anywhere? We did indeed also pull the issues, and the issues are in there. So how do you decide which issues to pull? Uh, of the repos you decided, you just took all the issues? Yeah. Yeah, issues, it turns out, are not that spacious. They're mostly text. Um, right. So, yeah, the issues were... Uh, quite compact they were not really a significant figure in the sizing and like all the comments on the issues as well I, I that's correct yeah i'm just enjoying the fact that there's like there's so much drama around <laughs> so, that's just been immortalized <laughs> in the arctic code vault uh developer <laughs> drama I was actually just thinking that, like, the feature might look back and think, wow, this was a testy and easily aggravated time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What's wrong with these people? <laughs> Or they might look back and think, man, they were so civilized back then. Yeah. Look how they, look how they, they were so passionate. With, yeah. They really cared about their bugs. <laughs> What's with these two-dimensional emoji? They use four-dimensional emoji now. Wow. Yeah, I mean, we're, it, we got the Unicode, so all the emoji are in there as well. So I look forward to the history of looking back on those. The guides, I mean, we, there are some translations, as I mentioned, uh, Arabic, Spanish, uh, Simplified, Chinese, and Hindi. Most of it and most of the tech tree is in English, at least in this iteration, and certainly that may change in future iterations. But a thing which surprised me, and I thought people might be interested in, is that we have this great linguist as consultant, John McWhorter at Columbia, and he said that people assume that since English has changed a great deal in you know the last thousand years, they assume that it will change a great deal in the next thousand years. But he thinks uh, the evidence shows that's actually quite unlikely. His estimation is that English is more or less stable now. You know, people learn it younger, everyone's more interconnected. It's not like in little islands evolving off on its own. And so the expectation is that English many hundred years from now will be as different from today as like Jane Austen's English is from ours. You know, a little weird, a little courtly, a little formal, but not that different. So his exact quote was, as uncool as it may be, you'd be all right with just English. There's huh. That's interesting. I assume that it would move. So, I mean, it's such a long time. You'd assume it would move to where it would at least be difficult to understand. Uh, but hmm, it, it was surprising to me as well, actually. You know, we did cover our bases by, did, by after all, adding these other five translations of, you know, most significant languages. We also, in fact, just to be on the paranoid safe side, each reel begins with um, the United uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights in every known written language in Unicode. So that's several hundred. So even if only some obscure Basque or Basque uh, language survives, mm -hmm. <laughs> then we do, in fact, have a Rosetta Stone for that on each reel as well. 
I wonder if there was a sense of dread when it came time to actually ship, because in software, we have the advantage over most disciplines of just shipping iterative improvements at all times. And I remember talking with folks who wrote code for NASA and stuff where it was like, this had to work. This was our one chance. And like you ship it to, you know, some satellite or, you know, some orbiting thing. And it was just like, even back when they had to package up software on a compact disc and put it into a box and sell it to you in a box, like that idea of like, this is the final, what they call them? Gold, uh, gold master. I don't know what they called right. them back then, but like, that was like the version and sure we could ship patches maybe, but they weren't going to get in for three months. This is like, you get one shot at this snapshot you know, you put in the the declaration of rights and stuff like these things where you're like, what else should we shove in here? Did you have that moment where you're like, no, we're going to close the vault. We're just got to stop shoving stuff in. Or was it difficult to no, stop? We, no, no, we totally did. It was, you know, it was difficult to say, okay, this is it. It was useful that we actually had a fixed date and like, this is going to be the snapshot, you know, and we set that fairly early on and that was good. It actually called back. So my background, my degrees in electrical engineering, and I did a couple of co-op terms. I went to Waterloo in Canada that does co-op um, of chip designs at Nortel and at Hewlett Packard before I went into software and spent the entire rest of my career after I graduated in software, hardware being much too unforgiving and, and permanent. Um, but the chip design, you know, was a lot like that, you know, you've, you're working on this VHDL and you get it working and you've got the test working, you think, and then you actually send it out to be fabricated somewhere and burnt mm. into silicon. And if you screwed up, like there's nothing that can be done. Going back. <laughs> you, yes, exactly. It's, and so it, it reminded me of that for the first time in a very long time that, you know, you are committing this to the world, whether you like it or not. Yeah. As a software developer, I assume that you've, you've all but forgotten that feeling because don't we have the freedom right now to just not really worry about that? It was pretty unusual, the sort of the feeling of perpetuity, the, the you know, irrevocability. Yeah, it had been a long time since I'd felt that professionally. The permafrost. <laughs> yes, excellent <laughs> metaphor. Excellent metaphor, the permafrost. <laughs> well, that is really cool. Anything else about the program that we haven't touched on, that I haven't asked about that you would like to discuss? I mean, it's really awesome, and uh, I really appreciate you sharing the details of this program and all the work you did to archive these things. Anything we haven't touched on that you think we should? I think we have captured most of the things. I mean, I want to stress just how, how important and how useful our partners have been. You know, the Internet Archive, Software Heritage, Stanford, the Bodleian, et cetera, et cetera. I'm, I'm sure I'm leaving someone off now who really shouldn't be left off. This is inevitably the way when you try and list people. <laughs> but, but you know, it's, I think it was really important that we cast a, a broad tent and tried to work with as many of these organizations. The Long Now, the Long Now have been great. Having a conversation with anyone at the Long Now is always a mind-opening experience, mm. even if it's you know, a, a relatively simple one. And I guess Project Silica, another partner, hopefully that's the longest. But, you know, it's, I think it was important to treat this as sort of not as a thing that one company is doing for one company, but that a broad consortium are doing, you know, and hopefully as a general goodwill thing. I mean, this is, this is not a project which has an ROI. This is a project which, you know, we think is actually important you know, or could be important. It's, it's sort of a weird project in that you sort of hope it's not really that important in a perfect right. world. It will, not, it will, you know, all this data will be saved anyway, you know, and we'll just sort of grab it off the internet a thousand years from now and no one will care about it. Right. But you never know. Yeah, exactly. Anyone who works on backups knows, you know, it's important even if it's not used. So, so you say there's no ROI on this. It, what, what was this, the magnitude of the I, at least? And you don't have to share specific numbers, but like, was this a large investment? Is like, is the is the mine is the is the rent high on the mine? Like, how much went into this kind of project? 
I mean, I'm pretty sure I'm not supposed to share numbers, but I can say I think it was more economical than people assume. And in fairness, Pickle, who are obviously the partner I really should have mentioned uh, in, in the Arctic World Archive, were very understanding and working with us and realizing that this was sort of a, a beneficial project more than a you know private to benefit project. And so there's no sort of rent we sort of paid up front for per storage and perpetuity in, in the World Archive, which is, you know, useful and is probably quasi-eternal in as much as he, things are eternal these days and that it's owned by the Norwegian government. Uh, the Svalbard Archipelago is, actually has its weird own legal structure. It's quasi... You can, anyone can go to Svalbard. You don't need a passport to go there. Anyone can work there. Um, and it's governed by its own special treaty, which was signed after World War One, which made it a uh, place officially free of war and sort of free habitation for any human being that can get there. Hmm. My so wife like a is a lawyer. Is it will, sovereign then, or is it underneath? Well, it's definitely Norwegian, but it has its own special legal uh, status as a sort of extranational territory as well. Wow. I mean, I am not a lawyer. My wife is a lawyer, and I'm sure she'll be very upset at me misrepresenting <laughs> the, the legal status. Well, you go ask her and get back to us. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that was my crude layman's takeaway from the the strange legal status that Schwabart has, which is you know kind of an international zone of you know peace, freedom, and availability. So right. it's sort of an optimal place to store something. You know, it's it's not likely that. Uh, Conflict's going to break out there anytime soon. Right. It's optimal for storage, but suboptimal for living, which is why there's only about 3,000 people there. <laughs> and they don't need, no one's breaking down the doors, even though it's 100% COVID free. That is correct. Yes. Awesome, John. So, like I said, a storied career. You've done a lot of things. This is a very cool project. I would think a highlight of your career, or at least if it was my career, would be a highlight of my career. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. What's coming next for you then? Can you top this one or you go back to building software products? What's next? I mean, I, I am going back to building the software now. You know, I think it's important to sort of keep doing the thing that you care about. And I do think software is important. Mm -hmm. I'm working on a new novel. Who knows what will come up with that. This year has been pretty bad for plans in general, as you may have noticed. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've had friends calling it the Great Reset Year. So we will see what happens in 2021. But, you know, I expect to stay involved with the archive program on sort of an indefinite, ongoing basis. And uh, sort of hope to work on the next iterations of it as well. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the show and telling us all about it. We appreciate it. Hey, thanks very much. It was a great talk. That's it for this episode of The Change Law. Thank you for tuning in. If you haven't heard yet, we have launched Change Law Plus Plus. It is our membership program that lets you get closer to the metal, remove the ads, make them disappear, as we say, and enjoy supporting us. It's the best way to directly support this show and our other podcasts here on changelaw.com. And if you've never been to changelaw.com, you should go there now. Again, join ChangeLaw Plus Plus to directly support our work and make the ads disappear. Check it out at changelaw.com slash plus plus. Of course, huge thanks to our partners who get it, Fastly, Linode, and Rollbar. Also, thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for making all of our beats. And thank you to you for listening. We appreciate you. That's it for this week. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.